Welcome to People of Eternia. I'm Tom Romero. Prior to the internet, I was really the only He-Man fan on my block. My friends were really into sports and other activities. Nothing really had anything to do with toys, which kind of left a hole in my life. I could connect with people, but when I mentioned my love of He-Man, people would either turn to a blind eye or just flat out ignore me. Years later, the internet happened. And the first search I ever did was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. That search led me to the Scrolls of Grayskull, which then led to my discovery of He-Man.org. There, I actually found others that shared the same interests as me. I met so many talented and kind people. Writers, artists, YouTubers, toy customizers. I didn't even know that was a thing back then. Unique people whom I never really interacted with in my everyday life, but now... Through the internet, I'm having conversations with about my favorite hero. One of those talented and kind people I have the pleasure of speaking with today. She has been a very vocal voice throughout the Masters of the Universe community, so much so that she actually studied every literation of He-Man from around the world. She was the head writer on the series of Masters of the Universe compendium books from Dark Horse. Without her work, I wouldn't even know about anti-Eternia He-Man being from Germany. She is a talented writer-actress and has just started her own YouTube series, Masters of the Universe Wishlist. Ladies and gentlemen, Danielle Galerter, also known as Penny Dreadful. Penny, welcome. Hey, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a great introduction. I need to, I need to send you a check for that, I guess. <laughs> wow. No, that's a freebie. <laughs> Everyone gets one. <laughs> that that was pretty awesome. Although I, you know, I got to credit all the people. I, I was one of the writers on that on that book, and I did do a lot of work on it. But there were many writers on that book who who contributed to that compendium. You know, it was just like a a labor of love with all these fans from all over the world that kind of came together to to pour their knowledge into into that tome. You know, so it was quite an, uh, an undertaking with that. And there's the supplement coming up now to the yeah, one book. Wait. Yeah. One book couldn't contain it all. There's even more coming. <laughs> Did you actually do some traveling when you were making those books? I saw an Italian comic that you found and a Portuguese comic that you translated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The most of the traveling came from the newspaper strip book, which was another book worked on. And I really wanted, I spearheaded that with Val Staples and really wanted to find these long lost newspaper strips. We traveled, we contacted, spoke to a lot of people overseas, like in Brazil, paper in Brazil, and spoke to people in India to go acquire newspaper strips. And the traveling came in when we went to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. We flew down to D.C., met up with Eric Marshall, who's my co-writer on the bios now, and or was when Classics was going on. And we went to the Library of Congress and did a lot of scanning of microfilm and to try to like get what we were missing for, for the newspaper strip book. For the compendium, it was more, there were fans around the world helping us, but they were like, you know, scanning stuff. And luckily we have the internet, you know, so mm -hmm. through the magic of email and Google Drive and things like this, they can scan stuff and send it to us overseas. We can download it, restore the, the images and put them in the book, get the comics, get people tr to translate. And Joey Cruel in Italy helped us out. My parents are from Portugal, so I translated the Portuguese stuff. And we have Sebastian Vogel handling the German material and in this new book some tape from Finland that Yuka Isakainen handled you know just like things like that 
are from around the world. Of course, we had all the stuff that we all know and love, like filmation and, and the mini comics and all that, that that's sort of commonly known stuff. That's James handled all the filmation stuff, which was a huge amount of material that went into it. But yeah, it was the most of the traveling was for the, the newspaper strip book. And then this upcoming toy guy that's coming out, Val and Dan, Pixel Dan, they did a lot of traveling. My involvement in that was more just, I helped out with some proofreading and stuff like that. But Dan and Val traveling. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you for all your hard work. You're in Massachusetts right now, right? I am. Yes. Yeah. So how, how are you handling COVID right now? Dude, wicked sucks over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all right you know it for me it's sort of doing like are the, you quarantined right now or do you occasionally go out i occasionally go out but it's not as little as as possible you know it's kind of like it was the quarantine thing was was happening full effect before now they've they've lessened it a little bit you know it's more like you know social distancing where you have to wear a mask when you go indoors like you know mm-hmm. be, being smart and doing stuff like that but but the quarantine thing didn't bother me you know it was more like I tend to be, you know, I'm an, I am I do a lot of acting and theater and stuff, but I'm actually kind of an introvert at heart, as I think a lot of our people who are like geeky stuff like us, you know, like I tend to be kind of more an introvert. So I have like tons of books and, and movies to watch and got to do some creative stuff. I made some like videos and things like that to kind of keep myself entertained, did a little bit of writing. You know, it's just I kind of try to find ways to keep busy, you know, you know think different things. The things in Massachusetts are they're they're getting better. It's not like I was listening to the radio today. There are a few, you know, I think, five hundred new cases of of coronavirus. But the hospitalizations are going down, so that that's good. And uh, I think you know it's just a matter of being careful and people being careful and you know just not definitely avoiding large groups and and things right. like that. Like yeah, I, keep your mask on. Right, do the mask. You know, I did do some virtual stuff with my friends or or backyard stuff. Like one of my friends had a like a backyard movie night. She got like a projector and a screen and um and speakers and there were only maybe like six of us there, like friends, wow. you know, and we sat apart and everybody wore masks and we were all kind of apart, but we were it was kind of like a little drive in get together in her backyard. So things like that, you know, are I think are pretty safe to do. Yeah, very and, nice. Yeah. So you just came out with a YouTube Masters of the Universe wish list channel. Mm-hmm. How's that been going? Um, that I think I I started that when the quarantine stuff started, like in Mar- I think it was around March when the coronavirus hit here, and all, my job went like online only, and I was home, and I was like, this is something I've been thinking about doing for a while anyway, even when classics was going on. Cause when, after they released all the vintage figures, I remember fans online saying like, Oh, I don't even know who this character is. Why, why would I want this character? And that would kind of bug me because I'm like, this is a cool character. Just because you don't know who it is. doesn't mean it's not worthy of a figure. Like one of the nice things about masters was discovering different types of characters and you can actually create your own adventure series with them yeah totally that was the appeal of masters yeah and then um your attack track episode is my favorite one out of the whole series because i've been dying for uh an attack track it's my favorite vehicle yes i mean i i would love to honestly we should get together find a 3d printer and just start printing out like filmation attack tracks yes let's do this (laughs) (laughs) let us do it that would be awesome 
I think I even said in the video, like a vintage attack track for classics, filmation attack track for Club Grayskull, and you get both attack tracks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're a genius. <laughs> I'd get them. I'd get them both. Yeah. It's just like there's still so much cool stuff that could have been made in classics that I, I still really wanted to see made. And having like seen a little bit of the behind the scenes when I was, you know, doing work for Super 7, I knew some of the stuff that was on the table that was coming and I was like oh man like if you guys only knew what we could have gotten but then when I see fans saying well uh, we're, we've reached beyond the bottom of the barrel like you know it's not there's nothing left to make like I'm like no there's still so many cool things so I I decided oh this is a good since I'm kind of stuck home this is a good time to kind of start pumping out these videos and I wasn't going to just like do it like endlessly it was going to have like a, just kind of a set amount i'm actually working on a big final one right now that's going to be like my big ending videos like fi uh, 50 characters that we still need plus some vehicles and play sets and things like that so it's going to be like a longer video which is why i haven't put out put one out in the last couple of weeks because i'm still working on that one you're also a teacher are, are you still teaching are you going back to school or is everything virtual now yeah, I uh, I teach college at Bridgewater uh, State University, and I also teach at Massasoit Community College. I teach English, basically you know, writing classes, freshman writing, creative writing. I did a course on Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, which I have nice. a blast teaching that, short story classes, things like that. So yeah, everything is virtual. So ever doing everything mm -hmm. online. I was working on it today because I'm not like a tech savvy person at all. As you may have gleaned when I wrote back to him, it's like, do I have to download a thing to my oh, computer? No. <laughs> like not a tech person. Since I've been practicing with the with the classics videos, I'm like, oh, I can make a little video for my class. So I made a little like overview video for my 101 and 102 students and uh, i'm going to share that with them so but it's going to be all online only email and discussion board forum and things like that take me back daniel where did you grow up i grew up in new bedford massachusetts which is known as the whaling city um it is in the book moby dick actually that's oh, wow. they teach them fourth grade we were reading moby dick it was like herman melville for for pete's sake i'm like all fourth graders in new bedford have to read i think it was like an abridged version but it's where you know old time new england city you know where it was known as bedford at one point uh and then it was burned by the British during the revolution and they rebuilt it and then it became New Bedford. And in the 19th century, it became like a big fishing boats and everything still. And so in the 19th century, it was a big whaling city. You know, they, that's what they would do. Of course, you know, they don't do that anymore. It's horrible. But it's like at the time, New Bedford kind of was successful in that department. That's where I grew up. Um, I lived in California for a couple of years, which is where I met my late husband out there. I was out there for a couple of years in San Francisco. And then I came back to Massachusetts because I went broke and I missed my family. So... <laughs> Yeah. Is it like the shore? Did you were you kind of like a shore kid or, or was it just all pier? Oh, there no, there are beaches here. They're like is definitely uh in New Bedford where I live, there are two small beaches. They're kind of crummy, but we I used to go there a lot when I was a kid. And then maybe like another twenty minutes to the west, there's Horseneck Beach, which is like a huge beach. You know, everybody kind of goes to to Horseneck Beach, and so yeah, there are tons of beaches, New New England coastline type places, and then yeah, there's the the pier where the the fishing boats are and stuff. So definitely uh, a child of the Atlantic uh, Ocean, I guess. You know, as mo as most New Englanders are, we got we got the Atlantic Ocean in our blood. You know.
I, uh, nice. I guess that's Maine, not Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also studied comedy at Second City. I did, yeah. yeah What's I, that like? Oh, man, that was a dream come true. Like, in my 20s, um, I early 20s, I got heavy into improv, like hardcore into improv comedy in college. And we started a group called, it was the Rational Anarchists. And then we had another group, Chuck's Cousin, that we started. And so I was like, I fell in love with improv. And I was like really introverted and quiet, even in high school and stuff, you know, just kind of dressing a lot of black, very quiet, you know, like the Ali Sheedy character in the in the Breakfast Club, you know, not stealing, but <laughs> just, right, right. <laughs> you know, just kind of like odd, you know. So, but improv kind of opened the floodgates to getting into theater and everything like this uh, when, oh, I was, nice. when I was in college. And then um, I did classes here locally at at uh, Improv Asylum, Improv Boston. And I graduated from Improv Asylum, but it's like Second City is kind of like. Second City, Gromlings, and Upright Citizens Brigade are like the three big improv schools. And Second City is so legendary, you know, it's yeah. like so many of the Saturday Night Live cast came out of there. And I was like, oh, I got to I got to do Second City. So I went to Chicago and I did like intensive summer training there in improv and sketch writing too, you know, because I was like, I'm going to I just I really want to do this. So it was a great experience. It was just you walk in and the walls are just like images from all the different comedians that went there just like doing scenes on the wall quote giant quotations painted on the wall from like just everybody like bill murray and gilda radner and like more recently stephen colbert you know tina fey just like all these different people that went through second city you know or or were heavily involved in improv in some way like you see you know, john belushi's picture on the wall and it's just like the history of the place was like you can just tell and you go in, and everybody who was there was like there with that same passion and desire to learn and to play and to just really hone their skills and their craft you know so i was kind of older already when i went there like most of the people who were there with me were on the younger side oh there were a few people who were older than i am who were there a great experience uh and it was in chicago which is a, a pretty cool city so days were like spent in classes and then nights like we're seeing shows at there at second city and at improv olympic at io which is another big improv place that kind of spun out of second city mm -hmm. so we were just like always you know people from the class and stuff we were like oh we're going to go see this show tonight or let's improvise shakespeare tonight like comedy like they do shakespeare plays but comedy style like mm -hmm. i mean just crazy stuff main stage shows and writing sketches and then having you know have workshopping sketches like you you cast your classmates and your sketches and then they perform the sketch and then then we discuss the sketch like kind of pick it apart like what worked what didn't work things mm -hmm. like that so uh, different styles of sketches and improv it was awesome it was such a great experience i, I wish I, I wish i could have like stayed there longer to do more classes and stuff did you um want to try stand up have you ever done that Yes, I have. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 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 I did stand up too. I did. Um, it, This was actually not that long ago, about two years ago, I did stand up. I took, I actually took a, a class, a stand up class at Improv Boston because they have a stand up division at Improv Boston and took an improv class with a, I'm so embarrassed, I forgot her name, pretty established Boston stand up comedian. She taught the class. 
And we just, you know, she, we talked about writing sets and stuff. So I wrote up a set and I, I did my set. And then after that, I did, yeah, I did open mics. I, uh-huh. I performed at Comedy Connection in Providence, Rhode Island. I did a show at Improv Boston. I And then just like local, like kind of dive places, like open mic at, you know, Mikey B's bar and restaurant, like the open mic stand up. So I went and did my stand up there. And the stand up shows, it was like they went well like i had out of the shows i did i had maybe three i didn't do that many i did maybe like six or seven open mics i did like three really solid shows that went really well two that were so so and then i had a really bad show like it was just went really bad like the crowd was not on my side for that one i was like oh man this is like kind of brutal oh they were drunk rowdy they were eating during the, the comedian when the comics were performing they weren't even paying attention to the comics i was like oh gosh i wish i hadn't gone to this one but uh any hecklers um yeah one guy yelled at me he started he started like yelling at me because i made a i made a, a political joke and i probably shouldn't have because i tend to not make political jokes but i i i threw something out and he like started yelling at me and like the guy was drunk and really belligerent it was at that show like he was like really like mad you know that i made that comment and uh it was i was like oh man like this is not going well at all you know i'm more comfortable with improv because with stand-up you're like yourself kind of like it's like you're more vulnerable i feel like when you're doing stand-up because you're just like it's you talking about stuff you know that that happens that's funny that happens to be funny i mean there's like there's a setup for it and stuff and you've got to you know deliver the joke in a proper way but it's unless you're doing like a persona on stage like uh you know emo phillips or something or mm-hmm. i love those comedians like emo phillips and judy tenuta but it's like they're almost like characters they create this persona exactly. in their stand-up and i'm more comfortable with that and that's why i like improv because like you can jump into all these different characters and do scenes and if a scene is is not going well you can like sweep the scene and do something different whereas stand up if you're if you're bombing like you if you're going into that nosedive it's like kind of hard to pull pull back out of that i might go back to it like i have some ideas about doing a different a different set i was getting bored with my set too like i was kind of like oh, i need i need to write some new material uh, and then i had that really bad show and i was like i don't know if i, I don't know I'll, I'll go back to this later and then i never did and i i probably should give it another shot you know very nice that's brave of you i mean <laughs> i'm brave but <laughs> you'll never catch me up on on stage telling jokes the worst show i went i had a good set but i went to this open mic where like all these there were like these it was like an open mic and the comics were like some of them were so bad. They were like, they didn't even memorize their sets. They had their set on their cell phone, a beer in one hand. This is like, remember this guy was going up with a beer in one hand and his set on his phone. And he's like reading the material off of his phone and taking swigs from his beer. I'm like, why do you even, why did you even come to this like open in front of an audience with to an open mic and you're like reading your joke? Like, memorize your material, dude. Like, who wants to watch that the thing you know what ultimately i think the thing that reason i really didn't go back is because it's like a courtesy that if you go to it if you're doing stand-up you're supposed to watch the other comics like you're supposed to stay till the end like it's sort of just professional courtesy to like watch the other comics and not like walk out after your set is over you're not supposed to be like okay um that was my set all right and then like take off and go to your car you're supposed to like sit back down and like watch the other comics either from backstage or or whatever or from from the audience and it's like 
oh God, it's like two in the morning. I want to go to bed. <laughs> you know, it's like, sure, this is especially, especially if he's not even funny or hurt. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a sign of old age too. I'm like, oh, I want to go to bed. <laughs> so, so did that experience lead to shilling shockers and Penny Dreadful? Um, That came from just like theater in, in general, I think. And just my love of, uh classic horror and vintage horror stuff like i am a huge classic horror fan and doing theater and doing improv comedy over the years like it just kind of i think that the it came together really it was probably around 2004 2004 we started the show in 2005 we started shooting in 2005 and at the time i was I was you get this magazine, Scary Monsters magazine, and there was like a blurb in there about this show, Gula Gogo, and I looked them up, and I was like, oh my god, this is a great show. It's like it's like a kind of a horror host show, but hybrid with like a kids dance show, and it's like monsters and and stuff. And I was like, and then I through them, I found out there was a something called the Horror Host Underground, and I looked it up, and I'm like, oh wow, they're still doing this. Like I love the old horror hosts, like Zachary and Vampira and Elvira too, and and just all. Spanguli, yeah, he's so good. I love Spanguli. He's such a nice guy too. And so I was like, wow, this is great. And I found out, oh, and this is something I wanted to do back in the 90s. Like I remember talking to my friend Ivan saying, oh, we should do a, a horror movie host show. But what I didn't know was that there were public domain movies that you could use to host. Like, because getting the rights to films is very expensive. Like, but there are like, a lot of like these drive-in movies are public domain films. So these horror hosts were making their shows using public domain movies. And I said, well, we could use the, these public domain movies and do a show like this. So it started kind of brewing again. I'm like, oh, I could do a show because this is like right up my alley, you know. And at around that time, I was in a play Medea, the Greek tragedy Medea. And Medea is, you know, it was an ancient sorceress who helped Jason obtain the golden fleece. And in Medea, she's become, you know, Jason kind of ditches her for the young princess and they have two kids. And Medea is, you know, he kind of cheats on her with this princess. He wants to dump her and you don't do that to Medea. You know, she's this vengeful sorceress from Greek tragedy. So she gets horrible revenge on him puts a curse on the princess and kills her and then she ultimately she kills her own children to to get revenge on on her husband like that's the ultimate revenge is awful show but i mean it's a great play but it's i was playing medea which was a very intense role and one night backstage i was playing the kids just like had a blast get like i remember them like dousing themselves with fake blood and stuff like and so like they ran up to me with covered in blood like, you're gonna kill us tonight mom <laughs> Yeah. And I and I so I started making like more really just morbid jokes like in character like funny like morbid jokes with the kids and they were laughing and stuff and then it struck me as very horror host like and then I I realized oh wait I'm in Massachusetts we've never had a witch horror host in Massachusetts and Massachusetts is known for you know Salem witch trials sure, right Salem. of course you know with a witch with witches you know that's one of our our things you know so I said you know um this is it all clicked all at the same time. And so my late husband at the time, I, was, I said, well, I'm going to do the witch character and you're going to be my sidekick, the werewolf. And you don't talk, talk kind of like Scooby-Doo growling and stuff. And he was like, yeah, sure, baby, that sounds great. And Magoo was always a very, he was like a kind of Harpo Marx type, you know, just very animated expressions and stuff. So, um, and then I roped in my friend Rebecca, who does, 
she's amazing. She's an amazing actress, but she's also really good with technical video editing. And she, she has access, she works at RISD. So she has a lot of access to video stuff. And my friend Ivan, old friend from high school, I was like, oh, you can be like the vampire, the monster hunter who lives next door. Who, you know, so we just started, you know, I have a huge attic. I convert an old New England attic that I converted into a set. And we just started shooting the segments and picking some movies. And then edit. I, I initially I did some of the editing and then Rebecca kind of took over the editing because she's very good at it. And we started out doing a public access locally. And then it just started spreading like uh, everywhere. Like we just in New England, like a lot of the we started trying to put it on in different stations where our, our friends lived and then people would find out about it and like, oh, I want to get it on in my town. I want to get it out in my city. And we wound up getting on all over like Boston. Uh, we were on in Salem, on in Providence, all the six New England states. And then beyond that, like all these stations started putting us on even like weird like UHF stations in oh, wow. Na Nashville. And so that still, I was like, UHF still exists? No, no way. But yeah, like all these crazy like UHF, VHF stations, like all these different places uh, started airing the show and uh at the time it, like to the extent that it could it kind of developed a cult following you know like what you would consider i guess a cult following of fans that if you like that kind of thing you really like it so those people that really like that kind of stuff like really gravitated to it and then other people are like what so you dress up as a witch and you play like attack of the giant leeches on tv like what what <laughs> on local tv like why you know <laughs> i mean that's how uh, mystery science theater started totally you know and then once we got once it start things started to pick up we, they, we started getting invitations to appear at conventions like horror themed conventions or sci-fi you know like or vintage you know monster conventions so it became like almost like a garage band like you you put out your shows your the and then you do to you tour and do these conventions and bring merch you make merchandise you have your dvds your t-shirts your you know fan club kits things like comic book at one point too oh, and cool. so yeah yeah it was penny dreadful's cauldron of terror it was like a, just a one shot with a, with this company comic book divas that wanted to do a penny dreadful comic so we did that and uh yeah and so we would go to these conventions and just you know in character. Have, you, have you ever gone to Chiller? Chiller Theater? I have. I went to Chiller once as a fan to check it out like years ago. And it was crazy. But I've never been invited to Chiller. I met Kevin, the guy that runs Chiller. I met him one year at Monster Bash and I was talking to him and he, he knew who we were and he was like, oh, I want to have you guys down sometime, you know, to chiller, but it just, it never happened, you know, and I would love to go. I'd still, if he invited me down now, I'd still, I'd still go, but it's been a while since like now we only do like specials like once or twice a year. So we're not, you know, we were churning out like tons of episodes every, you know, for, for 10 years we did, we did the show. We had nine seasons worth of shows and uh, we did the show for 10 years. We took a wow. you know, little break when my husband passed away. And then now it's kind of like, he was a big part of the show as the werewolf sidekick, you know, husband of Penny Dreadful. So when he passed away, I, we kind of dialed it back to like, oh, let's just do like a Halloween special kind of thing every mm -hmm. year. Cause it just felt like, okay, this is time to stop the series you know because he was such a big part of that you know where did penny dreadful originate from like was she always in your head that one day you wanted to do it or 
the name Penny Dreadful comes from the 19th century. There were these serialized tales of terror and the supernatural that would come out and they would cost a penny and they would, you know, kids would get them and they, they were, and so were shilling. Shilling shockers were a little earlier and they were a little more expensive because they were illustrated. That's what shilling shockers were. So same idea. And so that's where I took that name from. And I was using that name for years before I did the, the TV show. I was in a band at one point. It was a punk band and I used the name Penny Dreadful. That was my name in the band. I did a radio. <laughs> I did a radio show on um, uh, it was a local college radio station, and we play. It was like a rock music show. Like it was like punk, rockabilly, surf, kind of that kind of stuff, you know. So, and uh, I was Penny Dreadful on that. So I kind of just that name was a name that I used because it just fit you know, felt right. And then when I did the horror host thing, I'm like, that's a perfect name for a horror host too. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just like, it just makes sense. And it was already established that I had been using that name for a while. So I used that name there. And then of course, a few years ago, Showtime comes out with their own Penny Dreadful. And then all these people started messaging me, like either saying, congratulations. In fact, Scott Knightlick uh, <laughs> sent me an email saying, wow, congratulations on the Showtime series. I was like, oh, that's, that's not me. I said, um, and then other people were like, I can't believe Showtime ripped you off. You have to sue them. I'm like, I, they got the name from the same place I did from the 1800s. That's, that's where that name comes from. I did not invent that, that name. I just used it. Unfortunately, but you know, back then, if you looked up Penny Dreadful, like it would be like our, a lot of stuff about our show would come up like really high in the Google search. Now Mm -hmm. it's like pushed way down because the showtime is such a big, you know, big thing on the, on the radar, you know? And Mm -hmm. so not really, because when I was doing my research, I, I just, my first thing was Penny Dreadful, and yeah, one of your shows popped up. Oh, good. So oh, that's yeah, cool. It wasn't that, yeah, it wasn't really that far away. Oh, that's cool. I haven't looked it up in a while, so oh, that's good. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so, so where where did your love of the occult come from? <laughs> the occult, yes, my secret, uh, you know, dalliances in the occult. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, in general, like I like. Um, I guess it would be more like an interest in in uh, the occult. I guess is sort of like I don't dabble in the occult. Like I don't. Oh, practice, practice. I didn't, I didn't oh mean, no, no, I didn't mean any disrespect. Or oh no, no, not at all. I've just gotten a lot. I, people ask me that all the time. Though it's like, oh, do you really do? That? And I was like, no, I, you know, I just I like reading about it. I'm interested in it, but I don't. I'm not. I don't practice. You, you know, no, r- no rituals I, or anything like that. Um, no, it's more more. You know, uh, when I was a kid my uncle uh, i have an uncle valdemar that's his real name we call him uncle val but that's kind of weird because i'm friends with val staples so like <laughs> that's my uncle valdemar and that's his, his real name and he when he was a kid he came over with my family from the azorian islands portugal and they came to the states in the 60s and he was a kid and he got big into the monster culture at the time because they would show the old universal and hammer horror films at the local theater um kids would go there during you know during the day on a saturday and watch horror movies all day and dark shadows the tv show and just famous monsters of Filmland magazine Fari ackerman you know he would and so when after i was born my uncle was already a little older he was like in his teens and he gave me all that stuff. Like he gave me all his famous monsters of film and magazines, his old horror comics. He was trying to scare me like with the pictures and famous monsters. I remember and just telling me stories of like doing imitations of Boris Karloff and, and things mm-hmm. like that, you know? So he would always tell me about his love of that stuff. So then 
he was the first person I ever knew who got a VCR because he loved movies and stuff. And so he was in the 80s, like early 80s, he got a VCR. They were very expensive back then. It was like one of those big top loading, you know, VCRs, you know, they were like eight or nine hundred dollars or something at the time. First thing he got his hands on were like copies of the Universal horror movies. And so, and then I would just go, he lived with my grandmother and my grandparents and I'd go visit my grandparents and he'd say, oh, you want to watch The Wolfman? Or you want to watch The Bride of Frankenstein? You know, and we'd watch that. Or you even Hammer movies, like, oh, you want to watch your Christopher Lee movie, you know? Uh, and then you got copies of Dark Shadows, which I always heard about, you know, from him when I was a kid and I got to watch all that. That's like, I got so sucked into that. And and I still am. I'm a huge Dark Shadows fan, a huge classic horror fan. And then Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, like he gave me a book of Edgar Allan Poe stories. And mm-hmm. so I got really into those, you know, Poe was my, my favorite uh, writer. And it was just like through my uncle, he got me into that. And it was a love that really just grew. I never like stopped loving that stuff. And just even through that, just an interest in kind of spooky stuff, you know, like I always loved, I guess you would say when I was you know, younger, I was a, a goth kid, you know, kind of, you know, I dressed a lot of black, dyed my hair black, you know, wear a, wore a lot of like jewelry. And um, I mean, <laughs> I still kind of do, but I've toned it down a bit, but, you know, pale makeup and stuff. But I was always into spooky stuff. And it just, I continue to be into that, you know, it's just, I, I just, it appeals to me, but I don't, I've never been huge into like a lot of gore and stuff like that. Like, uh, don't get me wrong. Like I'll, somebody said do you want to watch like a a gore movie or you know a rom-com romantic comedy i'm gonna pick the gore movie like but given my my preference i guess like my favorite aspect of of that stuff is like the gothic horror the classic stuff like mary shelley and bram stoker and and the classic universal films and hammer and vincent right vincent price movies i love those vincent price poe movies and stuff yeah so always been a big fan of that stuff Correct me if I'm wrong. Your your first master's action figure was a faker. Yes. Wow. That's somebody actually listens to what I say. I can't believe. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was faker. Yep. Um, but what attracted you to faker? Did you already know about masters, or you already knew about masters from the commercials, and then you just picked one randomly, or? Yeah. Um. Because okay, so I. The first, my first exposure to Masters of the Universe was um, the Castle Grayskull commercial in 1982. And I remember that, like, just totally, like, sucked me in hardcore. Like, just the the drums and the horns and the voice, Peter Cullen's voice, and just the whole thing was captivated me. But I didn't get a figure. We were at Child World, I remember, and I wanted He-Man, and they didn't have He-Man. He-Man was hard to get. I didn't get He-Man for a while. Like a friend of mine hid He-Man for me finally. And I finally got behind another toy and I found, I finally got He-Man. So the closest thing to He-Man they had was Faker on the shelf when I was in the store in 19, it was 1983. It must've been 83 because it was the first release of Faker and it was early on. It was, you know, so it was, yeah, it was Faker was there and I was like, Oh, it's a blue evil He-Man. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get him. He's the closest one to He-Man. And I just like, ever since that, I've always, I liked Faker. Like he has that kind of like crazy appeal to him. You know, there's something so, I don't know, about an evil, you know, blue He-Man, you know, with with Skeletor's armor, you know, it's just something about that is like very compelling. But he, I think it was more that they didn't have He-Man. So he was the closest thing to He-Man. Gotcha. So you got (laughs) Faker and now look where you are today. I know, right? It's like, 
<laughs> if I had told myself back then that I would like, you know, be, get to write bios for for Faker, you know, that would have been that would my mind would have been blown at that at that time, you know. <laughs> now, speaking of the bios, you have contributed to the bios ever since Scott Knightlick stopped. Yes, yeah. So Eric Marshall, Eric Marshall. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So um from your point of view, what's He-Man's voice? Like what oh. what's He-Man about? He-Man's voice. Okay, like He-Man himself is to me is voice of justice and compassion. He's not like I know some fans want him to be uh, Conan or uh, more savage, and I see the appeal of of that. And I, I mean, I loved especially the Colin Tex era of mini comics. I love those. The second wave; those are those are some real favorites of mine too. And uh, James E. Talk, you know, sh- shares my opinion on those. Like those, those are really good. But to me, He Man is he has heart. You know, he cares about helping people and he cares about doing what's right and he has charm to him and i i feel that that's something a lot of times people forget and when they try to write he-man he-man has to be a likable character like and that's why i love uh, john Irwin's he-man because he has that bry sense of humor and i'm not talking about like wacky hijinks and stuff like i'm talking about just he has a likability to him because He's He-Man. He's he has that kind of air of fun confidence about him, and a little bit of a he can he can be a little funny with the little a little bit of a put down to skeleton, like you know bonehead and things like that. I like that aspect of of him as well. But he's also like you know he's a hero that you admire and that you you look up to, and just Masters of the Universe itself. Like there are so many elements that I think go into Masters of the Universe because it's a blend of every aspect of speculative fiction it's every sort of fantasy and every genre of the fantastic that you can imagine you know all combined into one you get sword and sorcery you get the fantasy the superhero fiction the the science fiction you know the the high fantasy you get the gothic horror some some of that thrown in with like scare characters like scareglow and shakodi and things like this you there are all of that fairy tales with etheria with with shira and princess of power uh, on etheria is a very fairy tale quality to that there's so much that goes into masters of the universe but i think ultimately underneath all of that adventure and the hero's journeys that they undertake that these characters undertake and the the mysteries that you know the caves that they go into or the temple the ancient temples they go into to find this lost artifact that that they're racing against time to get before skeletor and his forces get there beneath all of this this is all very important stuff but at its heart about the interpersonal dynamics between the characters and i've said this before on on like rose google dinner and stuff but to care, you have to care ab- about the characters, and you get that because they care about each other. There are these very strong bonds between these characters. I think it's very important to remember that because you have the bond with Adam and Randor and Marlena. You have the bond with Adam, He-Man, Tila, Tila and the Sorceress, Tila and Duncan, Adam and Duncan, 
Adam Cringer and Orko, like that, that trio, you know, uh, all of that is very important. And then even on the evil side, you know, you got the, the dynamic going on with uh, Skeletor and Evil Lynn going, going on, or Skeletor and Beastman and the sort of the master servant relationship there and the resentment of Beastman, like these kind of dynamics, I think are key and essential to the uniqueness of Masters of the Universe. And that makes us love these characters you know uh, it's just it kind of has to be there and they're larger than life and colorful and you say there's so much kind of that goes into it but i think at its core you have to have those interpersonal dynamics between the characters were you always a filmation fan or um i love all of it like i'm a fan of all of all of it you know but i came into it before right before filmation and i got faker i think he came with he-man meets ram man mini comic so my introduction to i missed the glute alcala you know that first those first first four yeah those first four i i got them later but uh, i i missed those uh, because i didn't get the 82 figures like i was looking at them on the shelves and look being transfixed by the box art of castle grayskull and everything but the first things i got were those Texera mini comics, uh, Cohen Texera, and then I got a couple of issues of the DC three-parter when that was coming out. So when the cartoon came out, I knew already like Prince Adam. It was just like a different take on Prince Adam. Like, oh, this is—he's not as like much of a brawler as, or you know, right. drink, drinking in the pubs or whatever as he is in, in this. But I loved the filmation cartoon. Like, I really. I was already like into Masters of the Universe right before the cartoon came out. But then when the cartoon came out, I think that catapulted my love for Masters of the Universe even more because I because I cared about the characters like it made me care what happened to those characters, you know, whereas prior to that, it was like, oh, this is cool and fun and colorful and adventurous. But I wasn't like. Like, like some of those filmation episodes, like I would like get emotional sometimes watch like, oh my God, like, you know, cause they were so, some of them were so well written, you know, and, and as a child watching that, you're like, oh wow. Like I distinctly remember problem with power and, and Adam, you know, that whole, I was got choked up with that or this Tila's quest, you know, where, where she finds out that the sorceress is her mother. And I just remember getting like crying, like, you know, I was like, this is a cartoon. I'm so, so why am I crying? You know, but. Unlike a lot of people that I think came into it earlier, I, it made me love it even more. I love the early stuff too. Don't get me wrong. Like, especially the artwork in those first four mini comics, I think it is sensational. I think I prefer the Comantex era to the Glute Alcala. Just the stories, I think, are better. I love Don Glute. Like, I know Don Glute from the, the horror world, from Penny Dreadful stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was funny. Like, came to the first PowerCon. I knew he was a big horror fan, so I brought him one of my Shilling Shockers DVDs. And, he, you know, he was like, oh. It was like, I asked him to sign something for me. He was like, can you sign my DVD, too? It's like, oh, like, oh, my God. Don Glute wants me to sign something. I can't believe this. But I prefer the the second wave of mini comics. But I, I like that stuff, too. And I kind of like how they're doing with the multi verse idea where each of those is per- is equally valid and they exist in their own kind of universe whereas classics kind of hybridized everything into one universe this multiverse thing that's going on now it's like each one is their own distinct world and that's kind of cool because you could even like set a whole series like oh we're going to do a pre-filmation series that's set in this world or we're going to do uh, you know a 2000x series that's set in this world so I, I mean it's i think it's all awesome especially you know when working on the character guide you get like such an appreciation for the international stuff too that i think a lot of american fans kind of don't 
acknowledge, even though it's like, oh, we've cataloged this, like that you can learn more about this. And it's like, this is really cool. Like those German audio plays are those are badass audio plays. They they're really good stories in those audio plays. And it's like this is this is a officially licensed material from the eighties. It's and it's really cool, you know. Yeah, when I was writing my intro, I was just thinking about that. Like, you know, as a little kid, you had the comics, you had the mini comics, you had the filmation show. Mm-hmm. You knew everything about He Man. You know, the mm-hmm. magazines and the movie. And mm-hmm. then, you know, years later you discovered the internet and your world yeah. just got a whole lot bigger. Right, right, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, with your work, you know, I found out about the Portuguese comics. Anyone outside of Germany, I mean, I would be surprised how many people actually knew about anti-Eternia He-Man. Right. So, yeah, stuff like that is amazing. Thanks to the internet. And then, like, I remember, it, like, you mentioned Scrolls of Grayskull. I was like, oh, wow. but nost- I got a nostalgia rush just hearing that, you know, because just I used to send stuff to Adam, to Adam Tyner for Scrolls of Grayskull and the old mailing list, the Guardians of Grayskull yeah. mailing list. Were you, on the, were you on that too? Yeah. Yeah. Very. Oh, right. that's as awesome. soon as I discovered the internet, the first thing I did was Master- He Man and Masters of the Universe mm-hmm. just to see, you know, what was out there. Yeah. First thing I bought on eBay. And actually, it was even before eBay. I think I found somebody on, on Scrolls of Grayskull. Someone actually recorded and, and made copies of every Filmation VHS cassette. Oh, nice. The first thing I purchased on, on the internet. Wow, that's yeah, awesome. It was, like, it was like something like 15 cassettes. Yeah. Yeah, and he charged me like 25 bucks for it. I was like, done. Wow, that's awesome. I got some of those. I got a bunch of episodes at that time. The 90s was from um, Robbie Beiswanger on the mailing list because he was selling copies of the filmation. And at the time, it's like I hadn't it'd been years since I had seen them. So I was like so psyched to finally get to see them and, and just getting like i had stopped i collected from like up until through the 85 wave but then like the later stuff i only had a couple of the figures from the later waves like i had real blast i had the sorceress but i wanted to like complete my collection back then it was so cheap to like get those figures like those final waves like i I got them really easily there was a place called figures inc out of rhode island i think it was and i got like 15 bucks a piece carded mint carded like you know clamp champ and blast attack and all of those characters that i was like oh i need to need to get these i remember Scareglow was still a little more expensive i wound up getting everything except i didn't get titus and megator because even then they were very expensive and they were hard to to come by and i though but i got everything else i even got the laser figures at that time from a european dealer cheap like 75 bucks a piece and then when i moved to california i sold pretty much everything i kept like a couple of my childhood piece i kept faker i still have my my old school faker figure and i kept prince adam and i kept spike or but i sold everything and all the stuff i had acquired like boxed eternia and boxed castle grace got like i got those for six hundred dollars together at the time yeah but those, those days like we had there was no entertainment we were starting to learn about all this stuff and piecing together the knowledge right and then also like there was not i think a lot of fans that kind of come into it now and they're like, whatever. It's like, it's like a, a, a we're spoiled almost with all the stuff that's constantly coming out and that's on the horizon. Cause oh, yeah. I'm sure you remember at that time, there was like nothing. It was like no new anything. Like it was like no cartoons, no comics, no toys, no, not even merchandise, not even like, you know, a licensed, you know, eraser or anything. Nothing. It was like He Man was whew, 
disappeared almost from the yeah. from the world, you know? Yeah. I think yeah, years later Sears came out with their collector's edition. Oh, the commemoratives. Yeah. yeah. In 2000. Yeah. It was like 2000, I think. Yeah. The commemoratives. It was before 2000 X, but it was, yeah, it was that, that was finally, it was like, Oh, they're reissuing the, the these yeah. commemoratives. Yeah. I remember seeing those. I didn't pick them up. I just remember looking at them and being pretty psyched that they were actually coming out at the time, you know? So how do you feel about origins now? <laughs> do you really want the answer to that question? Uh, I am, um, I am uh, not, a huge fan of origins let's put it that way i i am glad that they exist for those who are excited about them and i don't want to be the person that rains on anybody's parade i hope that kids get into them and get into masters of the universe i think that's the hope on mattel's part as well but my feeling on that is that to me they're just like less than the sum of their parts you know it's like Okay, they're trying to look like the vintage figures and capture that feel of vintage figures, but they have they're also trying to capture the classic style with all the articulation, and yet they don't measure up to either of those things. It looks like a watered down classics and a wannabe vintage, and I just don't I'm not feeling it. And I feel kind of bad about it, but it's just I just don't I'm not it's not I feel bad. It's just like, why don't I like this? Like I'm looking at it, I'm like I, there is a like little twinge of when I see them, they're in that 5.5 style. So I feel that little twinge of nostalgia. I will probably pick up a couple of them. I'm going to get or Orco. I'm cool. going to get Orco. I'll get, you know, if they do like a Queen Marlena that displays well with the vintage figures, I would probably get her, you know, if they do like a strong arm or, or something like that, or, or a Lodar or something, you know, I might pick up here and there, but as for collecting them, I have no interest in, in doing that. And it's just, it's just not for me. Like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. When I did my toy review on toylines.com, mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems I had was Adam's face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm not offending. I hope I'm not offending the, the wrestlers out there, but to me, the origins figures, they look like wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Adam's, you know, he's not a professional wrestler. You know, why, why you know, what's with the hair and, and that, yeah. that interesting grimace? I mean, I get it. A lot of people like the page boy haircut. I had no problem with it. But I mean, like you said, coming off classics and, and going down to this, just it's kind of like a step back. But at the same time, I understand that it's for kids. Right, right. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I'm happy the minis are back out because now I can finish collecting minis. Oh, yeah. Those were fun. Uh, yeah. I Yeah, those those are fun. And I think it's cool that they're doing those as like $5 a piece. It's like and they come in the little Castle Grayskull. It's kind of a fun way, fun way to do it. So I'm glad they brought those back. And it's just like I feel the same way you do. It's like uh, the origins. Like I just I'm just not feeling it. And I don't get it either. Like I was like, oh. When they first came out, I was like, "Oh, Origins!" And then they had was the the blue vest Prince Adam and the and the He Man, the uh, you know, with the with Alcala styled vet, uh, you know, harness and stuff. And I was like, "Oh, they're they're and the boot dagger." And I was like, "Oh, they're doing this is interesting. They're doing something like the very early kind of roots of Masters of the Universe." And then they were like, "Oh no, wait a minute! Here's everything. Here's all this other stuff. Here's Keldor, and here's you know, like." I don't know. They just were kind of look like they're all over the place. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you trying to do classics, but 
again like i don't i don't, yeah. I don't understand what what the okay like you know people are excited about it i'm yeah i mean this past PowerCon, i was so elated to find out about masterverse yes hopefully, yeah you know hopefully they're continuing the same style as classics and mm -hmm. you know with the revelation coming out from netflix i i you know hopefully that's something for us yeah i am uh cautiously optimistic about that you know like i'm curious to see where they go with that i am a little confused like when they were like we heard you we we know you want classics so here's another line that isn't classic i'm like okay uh but it's supposedly going to be compatible with classics from what i understand like seven inch sounds like it's going to be compatible they're doing this my understanding too is like if the head if the heading is master first i think they can do revelation but then they can go and do other things too it doesn't only have to be revelation they could do master verse master verse you know 2000x master verse you know mini comics or whatever or filmation so they might do different things under that banner which i'm kind of curious to see i think 30 30 points of articulation is a bit much like i don't like i don't even know what that would look like you know like what what is going to be our why, why do we need 30 points of articulation but to me as long as they blend with classics and they do other characters that aren't just variants because it's like i get it you want to come out of the gate with revelation the revelation designs for your first wave okay but please let's have like some like different characters too like there's like lady slither and hunger the hunger the harpy and king miro and all these different characters that we've ne have not seen yet in that scale and if the packaging is masterverse it's fine but as long as i can take that figure and put it on the shelf alongside my 300 classics figures to add to that collection that's that's what i want to see because that was a, an issue i had too was like well you're bringing in origins but why are we putting classics on ice so maybe Masterverse is like sort of the, a refresh of the classics idea for adult collectors. I would, I'm curious to see it. I mean, jury's out until we actually see these figures, but I'm, I'm looking forward to them. I'm, I'm more excited about those than I am about the origins. Now, do you also collect or are curious about any other like companies that come out with He-Man stuff like, um, like Mondo? Uh, they look cool, but I don't, I don't collect any of that stuff. No, I don't buy any of that stuff. Occasionally I'll pick up like, like anything that's, I have like a little collection of Orcos because I love Orco and Cringer are like probably my two favorites. I love like the funny, they're so funny and cute. Uh, so <laughs> I have a little Orco collection and uh, any, they're very, there's very little Cringer stuff, but I see they're doing a mega constructs, little Cringer with Adam. So I'll get that, you know, I'll pick up stuff like, like that, like, but I don't collect like the reaction or or the pop vinyls or i have a few here and there but it's not like something i actively collect for for masters of the universe thank you so much for being on the show oh it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me on it was uh you know it was very nice getting to know you uh you know part of the idea of this show was i wanted to find the creators and and get the real story you know i, I believe everyone has a story to tell and i just wanted to find it Oh, well, Tom, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me on. And, and it was great chatting with you. And I'm glad we, we got to do this. It was really fun. And I look forward to hearing many future episodes from you. Uh, I look forward to all the interviews you do. Thank you. Thank you to Penny Dreadful for a wonderful interview. She truly is one of the great people of Eternia. 
I'm Tom Romero, and tune in next time for another powerful episode of People of Eternia.